You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am your host, Sarah Custer. My guest for today's episode, Daniel Diermeyer, is the Chancellor at Vanderbilt University and a staunch advocate for free speech and institutional neutrality. I spoke with Daniel a few weeks ago about how he thinks universities need to not only recommit to these principles, they should go even further to include civil discourse. But the deadly assault on Israel by Hamas and subsequent attack on Gaza by Israel that has killed thousands of civilians on both sides has put these values to the test. And universities are once again tying themselves up in free speech knots by issuing multiple statements condemning the events, silencing academics who express opinions about the conflict, and canceling guest lectures from people who have come out in support of one side or the other. I wanted to get Daniel's response to this situation, so I called him back to discuss. Here's our second take. So Daniel, we are jumping back on a call after having a podcast interview a few weeks ago talking about uh, freedom of speech on campus and principal neutrality uh, specifically. Um, And because of what's happening in light of the war in Israel and the hot water that universities have found themselves in, yourself included, um, I wanted to just jump back on and, and speak about what your position is on your views about principled neutrality and how you think universities should be navigating this very complex moment. I think it's it's great to just start out with um, your own experience, Daniel. I know that as soon as the war broke out, you put out a, a message or a comment about it on social media. Yeah. And then you became one of these university presidents who put out another statement on social media, uh, perhaps becoming a bit more specific about what what your comments were. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your side of what happened there? Yeah, of course. So um, so we, we very quickly send out um, an initial message to the community on Saturday. Um, I mean, the way we the way we think about this is that um, it's very important that that um, you realize that when you are in these situations, you're on the one hand, you're leader of an academic institution, but you're also leader of a community. And a community that lives and learns together and people need to just, you know, hear directly from you. And it needs to be something that resonates with them emotionally. So the first, our first goal was really to send out this notice. We did it right away. Um, And we took a similar approach um, like we did there uh, following the uh, Covenant School shooting in Nashville earlier this year. Um, mm-hmm. It's really, the goal really is to connect with the human and emotional um, experience of the, at the human and emotional level with people at this point. So we, so then we had, uh, two days later, we followed up with another message to the community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as we all know, we, we had uh, over the la- next kind of 48 hours, even more of the details of the atrocities came to mind, came to light. And so we, we just, our tone was much more direct, I think, much more emotional, much more from the heart. And um, we also wanted to make sure that we give an, an update to the community how things were going on campus. And um, uh, so the first most important thing is like we had nobody directly affected, um, you know, in the, we had no students there traveling, no faculty traveling, traveling um, in, in Israel. Um, but the other thing which was important was how the student reaction 
was and how the students reacted to our students and our faculty uh, reacted to the events. And um, as difficult as this has been, this was, I think, really a moment when the university community stepped up. So um, we had um, the students organized vigils, they are a reflective walk, then there was another, um, on Saturday, there was another prayer gathering. There were extensive discussions, um, difficult discussions, emotional discussions from the students. Um, we have these Dialogue Vanderbilt ambassadors that played an important role in that. Uh, but we never had any of the shouting at each other or the screaming at each other that we've seen at, at many other universities. So I think our, and it's, it's always difficult to identify exactly what the reasons are, but I think our, our commitment not only to open foreign institutional neutrality, but also to civil discourse and to remember that we're members of one community uh, was helpful in this particular context. And um, we just had, our students did phenomenal um, and uh, our faculty played a hugely important role in making sure that um, this was a moment that didn't rip the university community apart, but it was one where we as a community could process the horrors um, uh, of, of these events together. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get into exactly how, how Vanderbilt has done that because um, it, it, it comes a, a coincidentally timing with you and uh, the free speech uh, forum that you guys are launching yeah. on campus. Um, I just did want to go back to this statement issue because I feel like this is a, one in which a lot of university presidents are finding themselves in. They're issuing these statements. They're trying to represent a community, as you say. They're getting a lot of backlash on it. Um, and it's almost like kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Whatever message yeah. you say or don't say. How, how, can, how can universities' presidents kind of do this correctly? So let me share my own experience on that during this period. And then I'll, I'll, I think we can draw some lessons and, you know, kind of more general aspects to that. Hmm. So we had... Um, when we sent our original message to the community, um, we had uh, some criticism um, that felt that we didn't go, we weren't kind of direct enough or didn't go far enough or didn't take sides clearly enough. Um, and that came, you know, that came, you would, it was kind of the usual distribution that you would think in this particular case. But what was really interesting to me is almost all of these came from uh, alums and, um, and parents, almost nothing from students or faculty. So what that, what that taught me is that, that on campus, we now have a way of dealing with these types of issues that, are, um, that, is, that is healthy, productive, and in line with our values. So, so the, the important thing here is that when you think about um, civil discourse, this, is not, this cannot be you know, mandated from the top in a moment of crisis. It's a culture more than a principle. And cultures have to become second nature. They have to be practiced. People need to know how to do it. And they need to develop a level of trust with each other um, so that when things get, get very difficult, that we're not falling back. So that, I think, was a really interesting dichotomy just in terms of the responses of that. Mm. And then what I would say in terms of institutional neutrality, I think there are really three, there are three approaches you can take. There's one approach, which is you're just going to take a position. And um, I think we have seen that this has become extremely challenging now. And um, so many of the universities, I think, were, they did not have an explicit commitment to institutional neutrality. 
uh, or were thinking about it, um, there, there was a lot of pushback. And the R&D and the pushback comes there, there, you know, it came in, it comes, or the challenges, they come in two different versions. One of them is the classic definition of institutional neutrality, uh, which is that, you know, it chills debate and it makes it very difficult, especially for minority views to be heard. But what we now saw is something different, which is, if you will, the practical problems. The practical problems is that if you take policy positions, um, then uh, in, on anything, then of course people ask, well, why not on this one? Right. I mean, why are you getting, you know, why you get, why are you doing like, uh, why are you divesting from fossil fuels, for example, right? Or you're like uh -huh. speaking out on this particular instance, but you're not speaking out, you know, when the, when the, you know, these uh, atrocities uh, in Israel were happening. That's a very, very, very difficult um, uh -huh. uh, position for university to be in. So that's the first position. I think that's just not a good, it, it is, it's not consistent with the purpose of the university. That's the first argument. That's the second argument. And it has the tendency to really polarize a university community. Um, and we just saw this play out in real time. So I think that's, that's position one. Position two is institutional neutrality flavor one, if you will. And that is, uh, that is a position that, for example, University of Chicago did throughout this period, which is they didn't comment at all. Okay? Yeah. They didn't no message to the community. Um, uh, and that is, that, I mean, it's clear um, what I what I think is important in this case, or what's missing from that, and I think that has to do with cultures of of different universities. But we're very community oriented place. You know, the sense of being part of a community is very important to people. So this seems just too detached to me. I think there is, in addition to being an academic leader when you're president, you're also, you know, you're like kind of the mayor of a small town, if you will. And there is a, if horrors happen and they affect the members of your community directly, as we had, I mean, we had members of our community that lost people, you know, during mm -hmm. these, doing these horrible events. Um, you have to speak to that, just like you would speak out if there is a school shooting, you know, a few blocks away where members mm -hmm. of your community either have lost a loved one or know somebody who has lost a loved one. That's just coming together and, if you will, supporting each other during difficult, that does not mean under any circumstances that you're taking a position. Or to put it differently, you can you can be horrified, right, by the by the horrible violence. Um, let's say at a school shooting, and um, and try to support the victims without taking a position on on gun control, right? That's like these are totally these are two different things. I think you can. Yeah, I think that's a question of culture. Right, whether you want to say just say nothing, but then you shouldn't say something on school shootings either. I think then you know yeah. it's like if it, if it's next door, you shouldn't speak on that either, and you just never speak on these things. The end, and it's a little mm -hmm. to me, it's a little, it's a little. That's for for Vanderpil, that would be too cold. That's just not who we are as a community. Or you're 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 very clear that what you're doing is you're connecting with the humanitarian side, right, and the aspect of people's of people's grieving and and sense of horror but without getting into Middle Eastern politics. And that's, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. always going to be difficult. It's always going to be I think that's the right approach, especially for universities where, you know, maintaining a supportive community is very important. Um, but but uh, that's not easy. And I think, you know, getting that exactly right, you know, in, in these circumstances can be, can be difficult. I think also what's, um, what's especially complex in this moment is... Um, 
that even if universities put out a statement that they think is politically neutral, for one side of that argument or another, it's not politically neutral or it doesn't go far enough. And in, yep. the, in the situation that universities find themselves now, a lot of the people who donate money to their campuses don't think they're going far enough and they don't think that they're making political enough condemnation or, or condemnation in general about um, what's happening over there. So that is, a, that is a new element to institutional neutrality. Would you agree whenever donors and the financial future of a university's is on the line here if they don't take more of a politicized stance? I think there is, we need to be, there's a really important distinction here. There are certain universities that have not taken a position on institutional neutrality explicitly, right? They're not doing it, or they're having a variant of that, or they're thinking about it. And so they have, therefore, in the past, taking actions, whether how they conduct themselves, again, if you think about divestment as an example, or how, how they comment on specific events that is not institutional neutrality. And I think what you've heard at, at Penn and Harvard was that. So that the, the reaction from, you know, from, from members of the board, from donors, from like, you know, President Summers was you have, you have lost your innocence. Okay, so mm -hmm. you, have, you have taken positions before. Mm -hmm. If you take a position on that, how, how can you not take a position here? That, that, so I think that's one aspect. The second question is then, um, if you have a position on, on, on institutional neutrality, exactly, you know, then people want to pull you in one direction or the other. That's always the case. Okay, so, I mean, to put it differently, on, on any one of the major issues that, you know, we had to deal with last year, abortion, trans rights, um, gun violence, people wanted us, a significant num segment of our community wanted us to endorse a particular policy position. That's always true. And what's different, arguably, in this side is that you have, or it makes it more challenging, you have these very, very motivated, you know, members of the student community that push on one side and the other, and then, you know, donors are very motivated too. That is not always the case with these other issues, but that was the case here. You had two very well, two very motivated, very passionate groups going at each other. But if you go with a position of principle neutrality, people always will push you to say you want to go one side or the other. That's mm -hmm. different to me than, the, than when university says, we do not have a commitment to principle neutrality. We're willing, for example, to take action operationally, again, think divestment or other areas that are not consistent with institutional neutrality. And then the, the criticism is, oh, wait a minute, if you, if you take a position there on this issue, why not here? Well, how do these things go together? So I think that's, a, that's an important distinction. And uh, the, the, the important, it was not just that people said, certainly Larry Summers didn't just say that. It was not just that, he, that they said, you didn't go far enough, but you, you, you commented previously, and now you didn't comment, sure. and then you didn't comment far enough. So that's a, that's, sure. I think that's the distinction that's important. I think in those specific cases, I, I completely agree, and those are distinctions where institutions took a political stance on topics previously. But, and, and I don't have the exact details in front of me right now, but let's just talk kind of in general, if we're talking about the philosophy of principled neutrality here, donors still 
might not be happy about that, even if you have kind of put your flag in the sand, principle, institutional neutrality, and that's still not good enough for donors. I mean, those are the, you have to be clear as a university or really at any institution that's mission-driven, what are your values? And if, you know, you will have donors that, that, that don't like that, you know, that don't, that yeah. they don't want that. They want, their, they want their, their university to be in line with a particular political position. Um, and that's what they want. And I think it comes from, it often comes from a very understandable desire. And the desire often is, that's true for faculty, staff, students, but it's also true for people that are philanthropic supporters, is they deeply care about the university. The university is an important part of their identity, right? This is like, I mean, where people went to school, where they went alums, is an enormously important thing of who they are as people. They go, I mean, they go to like the gym with the, with the name on it, right? With the teacher with the name on it. That's a sign. And so they want deeply the university to reflect their values, not only in general, but specifically. So, and if that's not the case, that's very difficult for people to, to, to deal with. So that, all of that's natural and understandable. It's, it's nothing, you know, like, uh, I don't think there's anything mysterious about it, but you have, to, you have to ask yourself, what's your purpose? What are you doing? And our purpose is to create an environment where transformative education and pathbreaking research can thrive. And then, you, and then every decision that you make is consistent with that. And I, it's difficult to argue that institutional mm. neutrality doesn't follow from that, I think. I mean, well, mm. that, that's the, and, and then the execution implementation is, of course, where things are tricky, but the commitment itself, I think, follows pretty naturally. Um, mm. So Even if it leads to financial hardship for the institution. You, you, have to, you have to make a decision on who you are, right? And if you lose, if you lose who you are as an institution, you, you know, you're like a, then, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're saying, for example, right, we're going to endorse a particular political position because we need that particular donation, you're no longer a university, I think. You know, I mean, you just, you just lost, your, you lost your moral compass, and that is never a good idea. Now, do universities make mistakes? Is there, you know, uh, do they, do they like, uh, you know, can they, can they um, act rashly? All of that, of course. We're all human beings. But fundamentally, from the point of view of what is it that we want to focus on is I think you, you have to be clear about who your values are and then act accordingly and be willing to take the heat. And if you can't take the heat, this is just not the right job for you. Um, I, I did want to go to um, the, your university community's response to this. And you've said that you were proud yeah. that there were no protests, there was no screaming and yelling, that there was a civil discourse that happened. And you say that you think that response has come because of Vanderbilt's work on establishing that type of culture among your students and, and community? Yeah, so I would say protests are fine, just to be clear. Even, okay. even, even forceful and emotional protests are fine. The problem is if, the, if, this, if this goes to a level where, you know, one group calls the other racist, one calls the other anti-Semitic, that can rip a university community apart. Now, just to be clear, that is still exercising free speech. Okay, it's just like, but it is, it is, it is a problem now from the point of view of treating each other with respect, right? And and civil discourse. So, just want to be clear about that. But there, there, and, and and this is again, not every institution has this commitment to or this 
this, this culture of civil discourse, but this is an important part for what we're trying to do. So um, what, what we have been at this now for two years, easily. I mean, we, our principles, our commitment goes deeper to that, but, but the key for us was to have sharp commitment and then to operationalize it. And the operationalization means that it has to happen in the students' lives and in the classroom. Okay? The classroom is, not, is usually not where the problem sometimes, but it's usually not where the biggest problems are student to student. And, um, and that needs to be learned, and it needs to be practiced, and people need to work through their difficulties with that. And it's better if that happens, you know, like it's just like everything. You get better in life with practicing and you get better in life by starting with things that may not be quite as controversial and then you move along. But we had a, I mean, we had on, on last Monday, exactly a week ago, um, as part of, this is part of free speech week, Sarah, that you were talking about, we had, a, we had an extremely impressive discussion between Brett Stevens and New York Times columnist um, who has been very you know, very pro-Israel in his, in his views. And Samar Ali, who is a human rights lawyer, who has, you know, played an enormously important role, you know, in, in like, uh, you know, on campus on these types of issues. And they don't see necessarily eye to eye on those. But um, there was a, it was really another highlight for us, right? Like how this can be done and how this can be modeled. So this, the, the sense that we're members of one, that, you know, somebody may, may have an argument that I can learn something, that if I go into a debate or a discussion, there's a possibility that I may be convinced of something. And, oh, by the way, even if I stick with my point of view, that I learn something about how I have a better argument for it or how somebody may disagree with that or it may have a firmer foundation or I may understand, you know, the boundary conditions for where these things hold and where they don't hold. All this is super useful, but it needs to be practiced. It needs to be practiced. Needs to be, it cannot be legislated. It's not the same thing as the other principles, and it cannot be legislated from the top. It takes hard work to do there. And our student affairs staff did, a, did heroic work during that week not to support students, to help them stay with it, you know, to I think work with them through the operational challenges was phenomenal. And so that's, you know, as that doesn't mean there wasn't suffering. That doesn't mean there wasn't, there were high emo, there were not high emotions. That weren't mean that people were upset. Of course there were, but we, we did not, the university community stayed one. It did not rip apart. That's mm. important to me. And that is, you know, that is often forgotten because the headlines are grabbing by the big conflicts, right? But it's a little bit like the dog that didn't bark, right? It's important to pay attention to that. And, and, and then ask ourselves, you know, what accounts for that? Daniel, thank you so much for jumping on another call. With I think that was a great idea, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye, Sarah. Be well. We'll now play the original interview I did with Daniel a few weeks ago. And just a reminder, this was recorded before the October 7th attack on Israel. Welcome to the Times Higher Education Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, the editor of Campus. As you all know, free speech is the core of the higher education mission, dating back at least in the United States to the turn of the century when the American Association of University Professors enshrined its 1915 Declaration of Principles of Academic Freedom. And for Western higher education in general, 
The value goes back to the porticos of ancient Greece when participatory democracy was the backbone of civic life. In recent years, however, universities' free speech tenets have been called into question by critics on both sides of the political spectrum, and in some cases, universities have taken political stances. In the murder of George Floyd in 2020, for example, or Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine. My guest for this episode, Daniel Diermeyer, the Chancellor of Vanderbilt University, said universities shouldn't be taking these political stances, but rather embracing these values of principle neutrality, that is, communicating them directly, forcefully, and often. And during these times of high-level agitation, as he calls it, when political stances are based on values of right and wrong, he's urging universities to go further than just promoting principle neutrality to teaching and encouraging civil discourse. In this episode of the podcast, we go into when exactly principle neutrality applies and when it doesn't, and Daniel gives some examples from his own institution of when civic discourse has helped break down tribalism on campus. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sarah. Well, glad to be with you. I want to just start about your scholarship background, which is quite varied. Um, you've written on economics and politics, but most of your teaching and research has been in the fields of business and management. So my first question for you is, what principles of management do you think higher education leadership needs right now? So my scholarship really falls in like maybe three buckets. The first one is like I originally trained as a kind of quantitative political scientist. I was a game theorist by training. And then I did a lot of work in, uh, in management as well. And um, my main area there has been to deal with uh, crises and reputation management. And I think the biggest challenge that, reputa- that um, higher education is facing in this day is really the reputational side of higher education. And that's particularly the case for highly selective universities uh, like Vanderbilt and many others. And I think that when you look at the data, uh, we have been losing trust uh, certainly in the American public, and I'm, my understanding is that something similar, something similar is happening in Britain and other countries as well. And I think that as leaders, as presidents and chancellors of universities, we have a responsibility to make sure that uh, our respective public, the American public, the British public, um, has high trust in their great universities because the social, the positive social impact that they have um, in the respective countries and around the world is really unmatched. It's a really good point. And that's something that we talk about a lot uh, in our conversations on the podcast, but then just kind of around the THE newsroom and in THE conversations. One thing that strikes me, though, is that we talk about it so much, but no one really knows how to do it. Is it is it a management solution? Is it a communication solution? Is it a community outreach solution? Is it all of that? Well, I think the, the, you first have to ask yourself, what is it that is the underlying, what are the, what are the drivers that are eroding um, trust? And I think there are really, there are really two um, perceptions now of higher education um, that are particularly problematic, I think. And they come from both sides of the political spectrum. I think from the, uh, you know, from the conservative side of the spectrum, there's concern about like, you know, wokeness and, um, and um, no longer commitment to free speech and free expression. Um, and from the from the progressive side, from the left side of the political spectrum, their concerns about the universities being bastions of privilege. So we're now going getting it so so to speak from both sides of the political spectrum with very different concerns. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what the first thing we have to do is we have to do 
the right thing. So we have to make sure that our practices are, are driven and consistent with our values. And then we need to talk about it um, forcefully in a way that people understand. And I think that, that uh, university leaders have been reluctant to do that. Um, and so this void has basically left the field to our critics. And we need to be able to do it with intent, but also in a way that people understand it. And I think we also have sometimes a tendency to just get lost in the nuances. Um, that's what academics do. They are experts in nuances and complexity. But when it comes to communicating clearly why great universities are such an asset for the countries where they're located and for the world, we need to be more direct and more forceful. One of the hallmark of your chancellorship so far has been the fact that you've been such a public champion talking about the Chicago principles, but just defending free speech within higher education in general. Are you saying that university presidents have historically been a bit reluctant to come out in in defense of that? Is that what you're saying? I think that's right. I think that, I mean, in yeah. part why we felt the need to speak out uh, publicly and repeatedly and, you know, forcefully on these topics is that uh, there wasn't enough. And I think that this is this is shifting a little bit now. I mean, we're seeing a couple of universities um, also um, making similar statements and making similar commitments and also changing some of their practices. So I think that's very, very positive. But, you know, we started this um, two years ago and actually, you know, personally, President Zimmer at the University of Chicago and I did this when I was provost there um, already like a good Lord. When did I stay out there? 2016. Um, so this has been an ongoing, an ongoing concern and a very important issue, I think. Um, there, but I think that um, speaking on that repeatedly and then acting accordingly, uh, that's the most important um, dimension of this. That's the most important aspect. And um, the more people speak out on that, the better. And uh, the more clear the principles are, the better. And the more we're driven by our values, the better. This isn't the first time that those values and principles of higher education have been tested. We saw this in the 1960s, and I'm sure it happened even earlier. Why do you think this moment right now is, is different from other times whenever they have been tested? So I think there, the first, the first um, dimension that's different here, the first aspect that, that is, is important to understand is just where like it's the increase in polarization across the country and across the world, really. So uh, are, these are agitated times politically, and the type of um, political conflict has moved from typical questions on like, um, you know, economic issues, like a level of taxation or redistribution, to values issues. And so they are very fundamentally about what's right and wrong, and um, that leads to particularly intense types of polarization and polarizations that are uh, that are calcified, they don't move much. Um, so that creates an atmosphere, I think, just of, I call it high level of agitation. And, and uh, that's, that's the background condition. I think um, the, 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 what we had in the 60s and 70s was there, free speech, of course, was driven by the political left. So the free speech movement in Berkeley, you know, famous part of that, we had this at university across the countries. Now, um, most of the criticisms inside the university have come from um, from the from the you know people of the left part of the political spectrum, which really has shifted. I think the issues quite quite significantly. Add to that um, the whole polarization, the um, actions taken by state legislatures now in many cases in the U.S., and that just creates a very kind of explosive um, combination. 
But I think there's another important piece here that I think is underappreciated. So um, when you look back to the core principles underlying free speech, um, there are typically um, people refer back to the University of Chicago as kind of like a you know touchstone. And um, there, there, there are usually two dimensions to that, and they're both very important. So the first one is, um, is a commitment to free speech. Um, we call this here open forums, and you know our chancellor Hurd, who was the fifth chancellor in the in the early seventies, formulated it in, in a similar manner. So this is part of our tradition as well. But that's really about having an open forum where students and faculty are encouraged to debate issues freely. Um, that was reaffirmed by um, the so, you know the Chicago principles in the Stone Report, um, uh, published like just about a decade ago. Um, the second principle, the second principle is uh, what we call principle neutrality or institutional neutrality, as some people call it, which is also about um, what the administration should do. If you think about the free speech aspect, the open forum aspect, that's about it's the administration's responsibility to not interfere with free speech. Principle neutrality is, is, is kind of the flip side of the principle, which basically says if the university doesn't have a duty to speak out, it has a duty not to speak out. And why is that? It's because um, you don't want to create a party line or a chilling effect where, where faculty and students are discouraged from debating and discussing um, even controversial ideas. So the, this, this is what's codified in the Calvin Report in the late 60s, which had the key principle that universities should only take positions on policy matters if they directly affect the operations of the university. And uh, again, this is something we've had um, as well. Now, um, again, going back to our chance that Alexander heard. So that's the context. And I think that everybody understands that. And then, um, you know, most of the debates have been on those issues. But what's new today, Sarah, I think, is, a, is a really another dimension of this. And so that's why I don't think these principles by themselves go far enough at this point. And so mm -hmm. we, have been, um, we have been very clear that in addition to these principles, we need to actively foster a culture of civil discourse. And by that I mean is that there is a, an understanding that we are members of one community, that we are respect each other, that um, there's something to learn from the other side, even if we, even if we don't agree, um, and that we are all members of one community guided by the same purpose and grounded in the same values. And uh, that is, that's more, that the, the reason why this is very important is because many of, of the challenges that we see today are not about administration to faculty or administration to student, but about student to student or sometimes faculty to faculty. That's a different set of challenges and we need to have um, an approach, a point of view on that. How do we actively foster a culture of civil discourse? Mm -hmm. You wrote a, a very good piece in the Chronicle about this earlier this year, combating tribalism on campus. Um, can you, you had some really good case studies in that piece talking about, uh, I think it was a women's basketball team who stayed in the locker room. Can you tell us a bit, help us kind of understand how, how you're doing this uh, at Vanderbilt Absolutely. to foster that? Yeah, so um, the, it, it's very important that these things are put into practice, so that they're, that they're not just pronouncements. So I'll give you one example. Um, I'll give you two examples, actually. The first one is um, 
is the women's basketball team. So uh, this was uh, this was a couple of years ago, and our women's basketball team, most of them are, are African American students, um, protested against racial injustice by staying in the locker room during the national anthem. So usually the students come out when the national anthem is played, they stayed in the locker room. I got a lot of very angry emails um, from members of our community, alums, basically stating that uh, um, this is this the, they're disrespecting the flag, they're disrespecting the country, and they're also disrespecting um, those uh, that uh, have served in the military to give their life to defend you know America, and that we need to interfere with that or intervene. And uh, if you look at the principles now, right, the first principle of open forum is very clear. Uh, our student athletes are first and foremost students. We want our students to be engaged in the important issues of the day. The issues of racial justice is an important, clearly a very important issue. And so if they want to take positions, we will support them in doing that. That's open forum. Now, uh, on principle neutrality, um, they are not speaking for the university. They're speaking for themselves. So uh, the, the only people that speak for the universities are the senior leaders of the universities, like myself, but everybody else speaks for themselves. They're not taking an institutional position, even though they're, they're, they're wearing you know, an athletic uniform. But they're not speaking for the university. That's principle neutrality. So we're not taking a position on whether, you know, on this particular issue, um, but they do. And so that's exactly how this should work. But again, I don't think that's, that's far enough. So you could leave it at that, and that would be fine. But I think you can be further than that. So what we did, consistent with our commitment to a culture of civil discourse, we invited um, the basketball players to a conversation with a group of veteran students on campus. They're called the Bass Military Scholars. They are graduate students. They are generally supported by a, a fellowship by the Bass family. Uh, many of them have combat experience, and now they're pursuing a degree in law, business, nursing, whatever it is. Um, and we had a conversation on the topic, what does it mean to be a patriot? And everyone who participated learned. Um, the, uh, the, the, the students that were basketball players, the members of a basketball team, um, learned that people in the military were sorts of points of view on that. And that you know, and what it means also to feel strongly enough about the values of your country um, to serve in the armed forces. Um, the members of the of the, the our veteran students learned also what it means to experience persistent racism and how how that can shape your experience. So everyone had learned from the other, learned from the experience, and everybody walked away um, with a broader perspective. And that's what we want. But it needed yeah. to be actively fostered. So we invited it, we, 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 um, we had a facilitator there so that people could get started. And then, of course, things are flowing very nicely. So there needs to be active engagement. And then the second thing I'll, I'll mention where I think this is so important right now is um, a conflict that is front and center for many students, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and um, where they have very strong points of view. And um, there we have one group of students um, um, some of them Jewish, some of them Muslim, some of them actually African-American too, that, and then, you know, a variety of others that are basically accusing Israel of being an apartheid state, and they're comparing Israel with South Africa, and then they say, well, you know, South Africa systematically excluded black South Africans, um, Israel systematically excludes Palestinians and Israeli Arabs, 
it's an, one is an apartheid state, the other is an apartheid state. And if you're not actively dismantling this new apartheid state, you're racist. The other group of students, many of them Jewish, but also um, non-Jewish students that, are, that feel similarly say, well, wait a minute, why are you, why are you, you, know, why are you signaling out Israel? That's anti-Semitic. So if one of the students calling one racist, the other calling the other anti-Semitic, these are small groups, but, but the passion is very high. And that can rip a university, that can rip a student community apart. So getting engaged and, and working with students to have constructive conversations is really, really important. And notice they're exercising their right to free speech. I don't have a point of view on that. I'm not having a public statement on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So principle neutrality and free speech are working just fine. But... But still, we get this very, very um, more than passionate, I think, polarized debate going on. And notice something else, also very interesting, is that this type of conflict is not a typical left-right conflict. It's not about conservative and progressive students. This is within progressive students that usually mm -hmm. see the world mm -hmm. similarly. And, you know, uh, the, the defenders of, 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 of Israel often say that. It's like we marched together, you know, when George Floyd was killed, and now you're calling me a racist. That's within a small group of students that share progressive values, but on this issue, they're ripped apart. And the psychological, I think what's going on here, this is, this is a very important factor, is one of my... my, my um, my professors call it the rush to righteousness. There's a tendency with a lot of moral fervor to look at an issue, to identify a side as the morally right side, and then, and then to call the other side names. And that's very problematic. So I, I love the passion. I love being engaged in that. But we should always remember that we're members of one community and that we can learn something from the other side as well. Hmm. I think everyone listening to this could probably recognize that rush to righteousness and in, in, in any experience that they've had on some a lot of these hot topic issues. Do you find that students have the, um, I guess, argumentative debating tools and intellectual rigor to engage in these types of debates whenever they're so passionate about it? And, you know, we're talking about 18, 19 year olds and not to d diminish at all what their skills are, but you know, debate is a very rigorous intellectual exercise. They're, our students are amazing. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're strong academically. They're very strong academically. Mm. They have, you know, they they're, they have great social skills. They're going to act. But they are not, from their schools, not really well prepared for this. So um, this, the, the, a culture of open discourse um, and constructive debate um, and, you know, a sense of civility when, we're, when we disagree um, is not, that is a problem now in many schools. And so they're not coming prepared often with the tools. And so this, we just a couple, last week actually, we just launched a new program which we call Dialogue Vanderbilt, which is exactly about that. It is, it is about teaching and helping our students to develop these skills through workshop, through classes, through conversations, so that they, they can engage in civil discourse. And they want it. I mean, when you talk to them, they want it, but they're, they're a little nervous. And they're a little nervous about it because they all know, have some friend who said something and then was ostracized, you know, on, on social media or, you know, through their, through their friends. And, and that, nobody wants that, right? Nobody wants that. And then everybody's worried about it. 
and then they don't they don't they don't then they don't speak up freely and then we lose an important part of the educational experience and you know in the in my chronicle piece i I have this like a uh, tongue-in-cheek reference to a science fiction story by Stanislav Lem, you know, where everybody puts... One of my favorite authors, by the way. Oh, very good. I love that. <laughs> where everybody puts on armor because they're worried that, you know, the other side will attack them. And we're a little bit like that. The actual, the actual incidents are very rare, but our students are worried about it. And, and, and you can understand why. So we're working hard in creating that culture. We're doing a lot of workshops of that. We have a very well-developed residential college model, um, particularly for freshman students. So there's a lot of that. Then there's convenings. We have um, the Project Unity American Democracy. We have the Future of Free Speech Project, which has a, you know, which will host an AI free speech summit. So there's programming, there's convening, but very, very important that we work with the students directly to help them engage in free speech, in civil discourse with each other, and that requires capabilities and also requires a level of trust. Hmm. Um, I want to just ask you a little bit more about the principle neutrality, because there, there has been a bit of criticism about this in this, in this position. Um, so just to kind of help me understand it a bit more, bear with me here. Um, if there is a, a, an academic who has, a very, has made a very public stance about their opinion about the intellectual capabilities of black students, for example, and th- saying that black students are inferior to white students intellectually. Now that is someone who has what some people might think is an abhorrent opinion. However, they have a right to have that opinion and they have a right to communicate that opinion. But then what does that mean for a black student who is sitting in their classroom who will be judged differently by someone who is in a position of power and has control over potentially their their academic career? What sort of stance, how, how can that... How how is how can you be principled principally neutral in that instance? Yeah, I don't think that's really a question of principle neutrality. I think I think these this is this is pretty subtle, but it's important to get this right. So, um, principle neutrality is very importantly about issues that do that are not affecting the university materially or directly, but that are they're not kind of not special to the university. They don't they don't affect the operations. Um, I'll give you an example in a minute. Um, this, the, the question of um, diversity, inclusion, that is a core university value, and that's, we would absolutely have to engage with that, right? So, but, but, but then there's a separate question about free speech, as you point out. Principle neutrality comes in when people want us to speak out on issues that are not core to university operations, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, that's, the, that's the difference. And there... Our, everything that we do there is driven by our values, right, and our purpose. And we say, we want you to, um, to debate that, students, in a civil manner, and faculty, and we do not want to tell you that this is the official position, mm-hmm. okay? So that you can take different positions, because in this case, people have different positions on that. So I'll give you one example, um, which was... Which was important to get right and navigate, which I talked about a little bit as well, which was the, um, the Dobbs decision um, the, on, on abortion in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court. So now there is a, this is a, this is a, this, so this really created an enormous amount of passion and point of view on that and um, a lot of, a lot of debate. And so how does principle neutrality um, apply here? So 
just to be clear, open forum, people can say whatever they want on that. Great. Not, not a concern. Um, and people have diff- and very importantly, people have different points of view on that. Um, there are people points of view from a kind of uh, moral or religious point, point of view, but they also have point of view, different points of view on how well Roe v. Wade was originally argued. So I have law school faculty that, that, have, that, that, that very strongly would argue that, yes, abortion should, um, should be rare and safe, um, but, but, uh, but that the, the, the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, was, was decided incorrectly and that it should, be, it should be done by Congress or it should be done by the states. So a, jurisdictional, a jurisprudential question. Very important that people can engage with that, right? Yeah. So that's the, that's the open... That's the, now, from a, from a principle neutrality point of view, we have two issues here. The first one is our position on whether the Dobbs decision was correct or not. That is not for us, for university, to decide. That is for our faculty, our law school faculty, our law school students, and you know, more broadly speaking, our faculty and students to decide. That's their business. They are the experts. That's what they do. That's not the role of the university to do that. That's principle neutrality forcefully in action. However, there's another piece here, which is the members of our community that are now deeply affected by this. So um, they're now, Tennessee is a trigger, had a trigger law, so it effectively made abortion um, illegal. There, there have been legal challenges and all of that, but you know, that's, the, that, that, that's the situation. And then you have to make it, now, you, now, now that affects the operations, right? So because we now have to take care of the members of our community, so we decided to, we had a task force that looked at that. We did a whole bunch of things. And what we did is we said, okay, what we'll do is that any medical procedures that cannot be obtained in the state of Tennessee, but can be obtained somewhere else, we will cover the expenses. And we also expanded maternity leave. Okay, so there is like, that's, that's how we did. Now notice, that's not, we're not taking a position on, on broader policy issues or what the Supreme Court, whether the Supreme Court is right or wrong. What we're doing is we take care of the members of the, our community in the best way um, we, we, we can do. So that's the, the, getting these subtleties right, I think is very important. And, and when you look at the statements at various other universities, that is not what they do it. They attack the Supreme Court decision directly, but now how does that? What does that make members of the community or law school faculty that disagree with that feel? So that 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 to me is is where we have to be clear, and we have to make sure that we are applying these principles correctly. And like all principles, they're they're a challenging situation. This was a challenging situation, but I think we 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 landed on the right side of it. Just to go back to the example that I that I gave you about a, a, a professor expressing racist views publicly, what, what would be yeah. your response to that? That would be clearly within their rights to express those views. However, what about the okay. black students in their class? I think what we would do, I mean, every, everything depends on the details, of course, you know, what's said in what context. But we are unambiguous in our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's important university value. That is totally within the scope of what we would, what we would talk about and what we do talk about every day. Um, and then we would have to you know, look at the specifics of the case, you know, what and how it would fit. We would, of course, you know, apply uh, our principles of free speech as well. 
and then we would we would look at the situations. But that is that is uh, that is totally clearly within the scope of what we're doing. Now let's be clear: a faculty member that criticizes our our position on um, uh, on diversity, for example, right? Um, from from both sides, we're not doing enough, or we're doing too much. They can say that too. So so. Um, even in issues that directly affect the university and its operation, our faculty and our students are free to criticize us, and they do every day. Okay, so it's not that. So what worries me is that if we have, um, if um, you know, there's a debate on like uh, diversity statements right now in applications, that that people feel they can't criticize their own university over that. Of course you can. Of course you can criticize the university. And you, you know, people criticize us for everything, and they should be able to criticize us right there. You know whether we should do this or that, or where we, you know, what we do on a day-to-day basis. But that has nothing to do with principle neutrality. That is, principle neutrality is about issues that are not connected to the workings mm-hmm. of the university. EDI, um, you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, uh, uh, you know, support for students, um, those type of. Another example. Right, uh, imi- you know, uh, questions of immigration uh, restrictions for international graduate students. We're we're very forceful on that. Federal funding for research uh, and uh, Pell grants. We're very for, but that is directly within the scope of what a university does. That is not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and mm-hmm. and again, even on those issues where we are supporting an increase in federal research funding, if a faculty member thinks that's a bad idea, they can criticize it. That's fine. It's all about, I mean, the whole thing is always about how do you create an environment of maximal freedom for our students and our faculty to engage with ideas. That's, that's always the, that's the, that's the North Star. And then these principles help you to navigate that um, so that you're creating such an environment. But that's always, that's the, that's the purpose of what we, why we talk about these things. Okay, I, I want to move on because I want to ask you about um, when you first began your chancellorship was July 2020, the height of the pandemic, um, and it was also it was also the height of the the race for a vaccine, um, which I assume is when the researchers at Vanderbilt University Medical Center were fervently doing work trying to get across the finish line. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Were you involved in, the, how involved were you in that whole process? Well, this, this, was, this was, of course, a very intense period. I had stepped down from my role as provost at the University of Chicago on February 1 with the goal of having a well-structured and well-thought-out transition. All of that, of course, was out of the window in March. And um, Vanderbilt had an, had an interim chance at the time Susan Venti, who did a phenomenal job. And then I was, I participated in discussions, um, particularly those that were, that had consequences then um, for subsequent year as early as March. Um, there were, you know, weekly board meetings and things like that. So um, it was, you know, it was, I think, a leadership challenge, you know, of a lifetime. Um, I think it was a uh, in retrospect, I'm extremely proud of what we did as a university community. Um, we were we were thoughtful about it, but we also were very clear about what our purpose is. And our purpose is, and what we are as universities, we strongly be- we we strongly believe in the power of a living learning community. And so we did everything possible to bring 
our students back to campus. We had 85% of the students back on campus in the fall of 2020, which was a Herculean effort. Um, we had the majority of our classes in person, and we were the labs were up and running again at one-third capacity in April. So um, our faculty um, worked around April, the April 2020. April to late April 2020. Okay, wow. so we worked. We we restructured all the labs so that we could have physical or social distancing, and people mm -hmm. worked on shifts around the clock, on a 24-hour shift. They slept in the labs, so that they continue their work, and that's so we had very important contributions of Vanderbilt faculty um, to the fight against COVID. Remdesivir, which was the first antiviral treatment, was done um, by Mark Dennison um, here at Vanderbilt. Um, the first clinical trials for the Moderna vaccine were done here at Vanderbilt. And, um, and we also developed uh, the most successful antibody um, therapy, which was then licensed to AstraZeneca. So our faculty did a heroic, a faculty and graduate student did a heroic job, literally working around the clock, a race mm. to find treatments um, and be helpful with antibody therapies and the development of a vaccine. And uh, it was, in retrospect, I look back at that with a tremendous amount of pride. Um, we avoided many of the very, you know, pretty intense conflicts at other universities. We have a very collaborative culture, and that really was extremely helpful in this point. And we, we all dedicated ourselves to our purpose, um, whether it's pathbreaking research or a transformative education. And then how do we do this um, in this context? So I'll give you one last example. Um, the, the, the Ivies, for example, shut down all their athletic um, competitions um, for the academic year 2021. Now, our student athletes are... Um, that is a, you know, there we are, you know, we're a Division One SEC school. This is like serious business, and they are, that's their life. The same is true for musicians, right? I mean, these are world-class musicians. So we bend over backwards to make it possible for them to practice and then to compete, and all our student-athletes competed, um, every single team. So a Herculean effort, incredible work by the staff, the faculty, um, and our students did a super job to like stay within the guidelines. So we look back to that with a tremendous amount of pride. And we, I think the, the, um, the lessons from that have propelled us moving forward is that there was a sense of unity, one Vanderbilt spirit. There was a sense of like, uh, you know, kind of operating at a higher level of metabolism, I always say. And also, I think of confidence that we will do, we will pay attention to what others are doing, but we will do things as we see fit, given our context and, and who we are. So all of that, I think, has, has stayed with us. So it was a very, very powerful experience at many, many levels. Hmm, what a way to, to begin your leadership tenure at the institution. Um, I just wanted to ask you, finally, I knew that, I know that you were in, uh, I believe it was DC recently, to advocate for more federal funding for research and higher education in general. Just reflecting on the heroic achievements that researchers at Vanderbilt achieved, how are you, during COVID-19 specifically, how are you thinking about the future of the U.S.'s position as a science superpower? Are you confident that it can maintain that position in the current situation? I am confident, but uh, I know I'm not complacent. And so I think that the, the, the model of um, 
of higher education and research universities. The great, uni the great American research universities are a tremendous treasure for the country and for the world, and they need to be strengthened. Um, and um, COVID was a wonderful example of that, of course, um, but, but fundamental innovations that have been driving, really transforming our lives are happening at universities every day. I think we sometimes have the misperception that innovation happens in the private sector only, but the, the foundation of fundamental all the way down to neural networks that are now the basis of AI, or you talked about the foundation work for COVID, um, or, the, or but, you know, the pieces that are in a smartphone, all of that was developed at universities. And when we look at it more systematically, we now have very, very compelling research that shows that an investment of $1 in basic research yields $5 in social benefits. It's an enormous, it's an enormous um, innovation machine that creates tremendous social benefits. So um, that is, that's, um, that those are the facts, and now we need to advocate for that. And I think that um, it's, uh, it goes back to the first discussion that we've had, these like attacks on higher education from both sides of the political spectrum, I think have the, are, have the danger that they'll undermine support for the private research universities or in the public research university, you know, whether private or public doesn't matter. They're, 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 they're doing a phenomenal job on that. And that requires investment. Um, I think people have the uh, investments that are going on in other countries, particularly in China, have been a bit of a wake-up call um, for the U.S. Um, but you need, we need to continue to advocate. We need to be forceful on that. Um, the wonderful job that we do for our students and the wonderful job that we do in research and the more we talk about it, hopefully the more people become aware of that because uh, they are treasures. They, the, 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 the social benefit that we're getting from the great research university is tremendous, but we need to keep talking about it because it's not visible to everybody. And you know, in an environment where you know, traditional institutions are being criticized all the time, we just need to be much more forceful in advocating for these wonderful institutions. Wonderful. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.